The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwire.org.
Begins to rain. The sun begins to rain. 
morning. What prompted you to come to church this morning? Is it routine with someone telling Alexa to turn on all the lights, or is it your mom quietly making coffee at 3.30 in the morning? <laughs> was it because your family was in town, or was it because you wanted to learn more about the Word, and you're eager to hear what Don has to say? There's a lot of things in my life that I can't quite pick a reason why I do them. Music is an easy example. I, it would be a super cool work environment and pretty laid back for the most part. But on the other hand, that's exactly why I use it, sort of as medicine, to calm me down or to hype me up, or even just because I don't like the quiet. The way I look at music dictates how music affects me. A published declaration of intentions, motives, or views of the issuer, be it individual, group, political party, or government. The definition of a manifesto. The reason why you are doing what you are doing. Life is filled with simple sub-manifestos. That is not necessarily the only reason, but one nonetheless. Why am I going to school? Because I have to. To learn new things, to prepare myself for the inconveniences that life will throw at me. Why am I going to church? Because of my family? Because it's all I've known for Sundays the past 17 years and Saturdays for the past two? No. To prepare myself for the inconveniences of life that it will throw at me. Last year, my dad asked me if I'd learned bass to play for Saturday night because there wasn't anybody else. I didn't really take that as a favor, so I started slowly learning bass. I didn't realize it at the time, but this was changing my outlook on music. When someone asked me if I played any instruments, I no longer said I dabbled in a couple of them. I just said I play bass. I also find myself loving songs with groovy bass lines rather than the normal rap or pop. I'm not trying to say your reason for being here this morning is not a valid one. The fact that you're here is what counts. Everyone needs the peace that you will find once you start abiding in Christ. When I first started bass, my manifesto was not to find peace in playing. It was a simple because my dad wanted me to. Your reason of doing something can change. It should change. We should change to see change in others. 1 Peter 4:15 and 16 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I will say a small reason for me being here this morning was communion. But my manifesto as a Christian is to learn and abide in Christ. What prompted you to come to church this morning? Is your manifesto a manifesto? Or is it lower with the smaller reasons. We should see change in others as a small reason to change. And Christ 
as a manifesto for it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for the ability to gather here today and abide in you and your word. Thank you for not giving us a set path. Thank you for the ability to learn and to grow and to find out what we want to do on our own. In your name I pray. Amen. The word hyperbole is a fun concept. It's a literary device that allows you to say things for effect. And some of these statements are going to kill you, literally kill you. I mean, literally, literally. Things like, I've already told you that a million times. Eh? Uh, Don't roll your eyes at me, I'll knock you into next week. Might have used that one, I don't know. Uh, uh, She's as skinny as a toothpick. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, literally, a horse. I have a ton of homework to do. I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more just to be the man that fell down. There you are. Right. Um, uh, a great philosopher named Alfred Yankovic, you might know him as Weird Al, my, my brother in arms right there, was broken up with by his college girlfriend and he wrote these words. Now, I, I, I'm not sure I can get through this without crying, but uh, says... You ain't going to see me crying. I'm glad that you found somebody new. Because I'd rather spend eternity eating shards of broken glass than spend one more minute with you. (laughs) He goes on. I'd rather have my blood sucked out by leeches. I'd rather shove an ice pick under a toenail or two. I'd rather clean all the bathrooms in Grand Central Station with my tongue than spend one more minute with you. (sighs) I'm beclimped. These are moving lyrics. We'll pass out tissue in a minute. Does Jesus use hyperbole? Does he say outlandish things to make a point? Well, we're going to look at some of those statements. And I don't think they're wrong, and I don't think they're lies, but I think he has a shock value to them. Now, I'm very purposeful in this. You, you've been with us for the last few weeks. We've been in this series called People of the Word. And this is really a continuation of that. And it's going to be all the way through the spring and summer. We want to be people of the Word, but we need to know what it says so we'll know what to do. And I want us to look at some of these shocking statements that Jesus says. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, if you're to join me. If you're listening on the radio, thanks for tuning in to Central Christian Church Portales. If you're uh, watching online, if you're with us, Luke chapter 14, I'm going to start in verse 25. Hold on just a second. I walked off without my water, sorry. Luke chapter 14 and verse 25 is where I'm going to start. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? 
For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Is it fit for neither the it, it is fit for neither the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. You may not realize this, but January twenty fifth every year is designated as National Opposite Day. It's not as popular as April first or Halloween, but it's it's gaining popularity. I kind of think it was probably dreamed up by a five year old. But National Opposite Day, you're supposed to do everything opposite. There we go. Uh, you wear your clothes inside out. You have supper for breakfast. You have breakfast for supper. If you don't want to wear them inside out, you wear your pajamas to work and you sleep in your jeans. If you're right-handed, you try to do things with your left hand. If you're left-handed, you're right hand. I mean, think about this from a second grader mind, okay? You run up to somebody and say, do you want me to throw this whole bucket of water in your face? And they say, no, which is now, and then everybody jumps out and goes, opposite day, and then you smash them with the water, and it's fun. Okay, you know, a second grade brain can roll with that, all right? Um, and, and we think that's, that's kind of the cool thing to do that day. I would say, if I said good morning to you, what would you say back to me? No, 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 bad evening. It's opposite, all right, working with me here. You see, I kind of wonder if some of the people, when Jesus says this, if they're not waiting for somebody to jump out from behind the bushes and all the disciples go, opposite day, and they all laugh and they all wander off. Because it's such a weird statement. You see, it, it makes no sense in the context of Jesus' whole life of teaching. The fifth command in the Ten Commandments is, honor your father and mother. When Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he is talking about turn the other cheek. And I want you to love your enemies and pray for them. And Paul comes along and says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, you and I probably were raised where hate is a bad word. Anybody? I mean, you want to hate people. I hate him. We don't. That's a strong word. You can't take that back. In fact, some of the funniest part is that Jesus is upsetting people because he's too welcoming, he's too loving, he's too involving. And now why? Why does this jump out with this phrase, hate? Well, my first thought would be it's a translational error from the Greek to the Hebrew, to, from the Greek to the Latin to the English to German or whatever it was in between there. So you go back to the Greek, and the Greek word here is misos. Everybody say misos. It's... It's a word that shows up six times in the New Testament. Five of those times, it is in relation to a feeling directed toward Jesus or Jesus' followers, Jews. Um, in John 15, Jesus says, when, unless, uh, he says in John 15, if the world hates you, 
Remember, it hated me first. Do we remember that passage? And then Zechariah, who was John the Baptist's dad, and he couldn't talk because he laughed early, if you read that whole story. Then when he is able to talk, he gives this whole chapter-long praise of God. It's a song that he sings about God, and he says, Praise God, praise the God who saves us from our enemies, from all who hate us. All the times that all the first five times that it shows up in the New Testament are in those phrasings, but the only time it is used in the entire Bible is in this passage, in this vein. Everywhere else, it's uh, this is the only time where the hate er, not the hate e. Does that make sense? Uh, that it was directed for us to hate. Now, some versions of the Bible are going to come along and they're going to try to make it a little more palatable. The good news version is going to say, unless they love me more than they love their mother and father. Eh, okay. The message comes along and says, "Come to uh, any, unless any man comes to me but refuses to let go of mom and dad. That seems a little different than hate mom and dad. Just, just let go of them. Even the Matthew chapter 10 the, the same story in the Matthew Gospel, Matthew 10, verse 37, says, Whoever loves mother and father more than me. It's the same story, but it's phrased a little different. But Luke, Luke version comes along, he doesn't domesticate it. He, it's very stark, it's very in your face. Why would he use that phrasing? It's hard to hear, which makes us say, is that really what was meant there? Is it real? Does Jesus really mean for us to hate our family? That's hard to understand. But this is a, a slide Franklin used last week, and it needs to be as a, a concept that's underlying everything we're doing in the Bible. We don't know what to do unless we know what it says. So we need to dig deep. Go with me then. And I think a big part of this whole story starts in verse 25. Look back at how it starts. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Now, for most preachers, that would be a great phrase. I would love to hear large crowds following. That, that should be what we want. In fact, some of the concern with the mega church idea is these large crowds are following, so you have to soften down everything. Does that make sense? You have to, you have to lighten it up. To, to appeal to the masses, maybe we better uh, speak a little bit more about feeling good. And it becomes almost a TED Talk. And, and, but the funny part about this is Jesus never spoke in a mega church. Jesus... <laughs> actually spent very little time preaching. Do you realize that? 90% of his ministry was small group ministry. It was with 12 guys. He spent most of his time with small groups. He didn't take attendance because he was dealing with transformation. He wanted people to be radically moved. He didn't promise riches. In fact, he promised just the opposite. Hey, in this world, you're going to have troubles. Don't worry, I've already overcome this world. Now, this is my opinion, but I think Jesus is trying to get the attention of the crowds. So he uses hyperbole. He uses this concept of, I'm going to shock you so you'll pay attention. I think he's trying to get us to take seriously the cost of discipleship. 
And I think he purposely chooses this imagery of mom and dad. Hate your mother. Hate your spouse, your kids. It's, it's off-putting to us, isn't it? It, 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 it just kind of crawls on us. But the shock value, hopefully, is going to make us ask some tough questions. It's going to make us ask, will we prioritize correctly? So let me see. I've been working on this metaphor, and I've tried it a couple of times. I don't know if this is going to work, but stick with me for a minute or two, okay? Suppose, let's just suppose it wasn't me preaching today, it wasn't Franklin preaching today, that Jesus shows up. Jesus is going to preach here today. Jesus wants you to take the pulpit. Here, we'll put the little mic on your ear. You come up here and talk. And Jesus says, man, it's really great to be with you. Uh, I love all of you. If you want to be my disciple, the first thing you're going to need to do is you're going to need to give up your cup of coffee. Now, some of you just grabbed your coffee cup a little tighter. <laughs> what, what, what are you talking about, Don? Uh, okay, just stay, hear me out. Uh, I'm going to need you to give up that coffee. Now, to some of you that don't drink coffee, that's no big deal. Uh, you're like, ah, easy, uh, done, next. But to some of us, that's, that's kind of lifeblood right there. Uh, I've always said I, it's not going to kill me to not have coffee. It might kill you. Uh, You'll have to deal with me, okay? But let's be honest. If if Jesus was standing right here and that was what he asked, most of us, we'd probably do that, wouldn't we? We'd probably, like I said, we might have a headache for a day or two uh, getting off of the caffeine and all. You know, we'd figure something out. But we'd probably do it. And he says, the first thing I'm going to need is I'm going to need your cup of coffee. And then he says, hey, you know that, that car you got, the, the one with the heated seats and the backup camera? I'm, I'm going to need that too. Your first thought, well, are, are you going to take over payments on it? Uh, no, no, you're going to need to keep the payments, but I'm going to need that car. Well, some of you might start to squirm a little in your seat, but then you go home and you and your wife, you sit around and say, well, maybe, maybe we could deal with one car. Maybe we could, you know, we'll just carpool a little bit more. Maybe we work at it. It's Jesus. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Hey, maybe, maybe I could. I, I guess I could. And then he says, hey, and another thing, that, that job you have, you know the one where you get the paycheck that you like? You may not like the job that much, but you like that paycheck thing. I'm going to need that. What, what? Oh, and the 401k that you've been working all these years and you've been building up into it, and you can see the... You know, just a few more years, and we're on the front porch, and we're in the motorhome, and we're, I can see the end coming. I'm going to need all of that, too. You see, it's at that point we start to get a little bit more uncomfortable. We start squirming a little bit. But Jesus, I need those to provide for my family. I mean, I've got I've to put food on the table. I need to provide for them. And he says, hey, I'm glad you mentioned family. I'm going to need that too. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need that daughter, that one you prayed for all those years. Uh, I'm going to need that. Uh, you know, those, those grandkids, those ones that you, you just love. You tolerate the kids because they bring the grandkids around. You know, I, I'm going to need those. See, there's a point in the life of a disciple where you've got to decide what is really important. 
What is your manifesto, in the words of Caden Smith? What is, what is top of the list? What is the most important thing? And that's tough. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, where I, I've been reading and looking at some of these. This is one of my favorite quotes from it. We've got another one coming up in a minute. Salvation's free. Discipleship costs everything. He will give us free eternity, but discipleship, and it's hard. You see, sermon series like this are tough. They're, they're tough because we don't want to talk about some of these things. We don't like meddling in how we handle our life, our finances, our habits, our addictions. We don't like talk, people talking to us about those things. But do you realize that each of us every day make decisions about what's most important in our life? Anybody going to argue that? We all make those decisions and we make them every day. Now people will say, well, I don't have time to do this. Actually, you have the exact same 24 hours in a day that I do. And I mean, we all do. We choose what is most important in those times, don't we? And we've got to choose and we've got to understand that discipleship involves real commitment, real efforts. Now, our goal as Christ's followers is to bring as many people as we can to introduce to Jesus. Is that a fair statement? Not bring them to church, bring them to Jesus. But often the hardest people to bring to Christ are Christians. Or to say it another way, the church is often filled with Christians, but is it filled with disciples? See, now, this all comes from large crowds were following Jesus. Why were large crowds following Jesus? Because, hey, it's fun. This guy, we like this Jesus guy. He's talking about loving everybody. He's very inclusive. People with backgrounds, people with paths. He's welcoming everybody. He's making people better. He's healing people. That turning water to wine thing, I'm a big fan of that. You know, that, that, was, that was cool, all right? And heaven, oh, we want in on that train, all right? We want all of that. We like him. But are we willing to pick up our cross and follow him? Or maybe a little more appropriate for our culture, are we willing to put down some things to follow him? Did that make sense? Are we willing to put down even some good things to lay them down so we can take up Jesus? Things like our sports or our kids' sports or our possessions or our respect. Or maybe it's, maybe it's our comfort. I like my chair. Anybody? I like my chair. All right? I like sitting in my chair. I like my TV. I like those things. But are they first? You see, Jesus knows this kind of discipleship is costly. And he's not looking for superficial bandwagon riders. Anybody know what a bandwagon is? Dan Rice was a clown in 1848 and he led a circus that went around and they had a float they had a ride a, a wagon that carried all the members of the band hence the name band wagon it usually came at the end of the parade and 
1848, he ran into a guy named Zachary Taylor. Zachary Taylor was going to run for president. And so he invites Mr. Taylor, why don't you come ride with us? You can ride on the bandwagon and you can say hi to people back there with the band and you can go around and it'll be a cool thing. And they did. And nobody had ever done it. And it became a really huge hit. And within 20 years, every circus had a presidential candidate on it. And by 1900, the term bandwagon became a negative term. It was a derogatory term. It means you didn't believe what you were saying. You're just riding along. All right? So in looking at this, Psychology Today wrote, a, wrote an article in 2019 called The Bandwagon Effect, Will We Think for Ourselves? It's a really brilliant concept. and You ought to read the article sometimes. It talks about are we thinking for ourselves or are we just buying what everybody else is telling us? Because the vast majority of our marketing is based on the bandwagon effect. If we can get you to think that it's cool and everybody else thinks it's cool, then you're on the bandwagon. And I can give you a proof example of it. Just this week I saw a commercial, and I think it's American Express. It's about the thin brow. Has anybody seen this one? No one, nobody's seen this? Anybody got TV? <laughs> anybody speak English in here? All right. I'm seeing a sea of... All right, okay. Um, American Express has this... This girl, she wants her business to grow, so she shaves off her eyebrows and paints this little thin, like, pointy thing on the top of her forehead. Oh, it's cool. And all of her business starts busting up. She goes viral. It goes blowing up. Wow, everybody wants this. And there are pens, and there's news people and sports people, and they're all cool because they're in on the thin brow thing and then she's signing some documents at the end and doing an interview and one of the cameramen comes out with you know big big bushy eyebrows and she goes oh maybe that's the next big thing and you see the premise behind it is will you do what everybody else says is cool or will you will you do what you think you see jesus was i believe when he's saying this stuff he's trying to combat the bandwagon effect large crowds are following him I want you to count the cost, he says. He's not looking for people to buy his next book or sign up for his conference or, or subscribe to his podcast. He's looking for people that will make a deliberate choice to live differently. See, folks, God is calling us. And the calling of God on our lives has got to reorganize. It's got to reprioritize everything. Everything in our life, our money, our time, our actions. And he gives two examples of this in this story here. The first one is a building project. He says, will you start a building project without knowing what it's going to cost? Now, any of us in here that have ever done a building project, there's two factors that are universal about building projects. They always take longer and they always cost more. All right. Yeah, see, you, you didn't, I didn't even have to try that. They're always going to take longer. They're always going to cost more, right? But you have a ballpark budget. You don't just randomly go off and start, woohoo, let's do this, and then go, oh, we don't have enough money to do that. He says, because they will mock you and make fun of you. Another example he gives is war. Would you go to war if you know you're going to lose? I'm not talking about current culture anywhere in the world. I'm talking about as a leader, what would you stop and you think? Because 
man, if I lose, then I'm not the leader anymore. I don't want to lose, so I need to analyze, can I do this? But I want you to note Jesus' words when he gives both of these examples. He says, before you build a house, you're going to sit down and estimate. Before you go to war, you're going to sit down and consider. One of the interesting things to me about a lot of us that come to Jesus, there is an emotion involved, yes? And we want that. I do not want us void of emotion. Going into that water and coming up out of that water is powerful. And maybe it's at camp or maybe it's in an event. And, and we need that emotion. But to walk with Christ every day on purpose is a thinking situation. It's on purpose. It's a, discipleship is not a one-time choice. I chose to pray a prayer. I chose to get baptized. No, it is an everyday choice. It's a choice I make every day, and I have to analyze, is this more than church attendance? Is this more than church membership? It's going to cost. For several years, I've added in a line to the weddings that I've been honored to perform many in here, and I'm thrilled to do that. I love doing that. But there's a line I've added into the wedding ceremony And I say, in a few minutes, you're legally going to be husband and wife. We're going to sign a little paper, and you'll legally be husband and wife. But you have to choose if you want to be married tomorrow. And every new tomorrow that stretches out in front of you. Any of us that have been married for any amount of time, would you agree with that statement? you got to choose. Because maybe one day somebody chooses they don't. Maybe one day as a follower we choose. He's saying, sit down and consider. Think. Think about what we're doing. Because when you draw close to God, every relationship changes. When you draw close to God, every single solitary relationship in your life has to change. Now, some are going to go incredibly deeper. And some are going to go away. And that's not a bad thing. Specifically, talking to teenagers. There's a lot of adults in this room that can look and say, man, I wish they wouldn't hang out with that. Any adults in the, in the group? We've seen that. We've seen young people. Oh, I wish you wouldn't hang out with those. Watch who you're hanging out with. Guess what? That applies to adults too. We have some friendships. We have some relationships that are hanging on, that are dragging us down. Where is the line between what is yours and what is God's? Are you willing to let some friendships go? Are you willing to let some habits go? Are you willing to change some habits? It is going to cost to be a disciple. And Jesus turns around to these crowds and says, Look, you need to understand, it's an expensive cost. But he finishes up and he starts talking about salt. First we're talking about building and then we're talking about uh, war. And then he talks about salt. Salt is good, but what happens when it's not good? And in this weird little phrasing, he tells us there is a cost to not choose to serve Jesus. You're at a crossroads. You've got to choose. Either one is going to cost you, basically, is what he's going to say. He's saying you were made to be salt. But if you're not going to be that, you're going to be thrown out. You're not worth anything. You're either going to be worth something or you're not going to be worth something. And it says you're not worth going to the dirt or the manure pile. 
You can't leave a word like manure pile in a verse and not expect me to go digging in that one, all right? It really says that in the Bible? I've got to go find what this... So start looking and, and digging through some of these things and did not know this. Now, most of us know what salt is for. We, see, you know, we season stuff. With, we know it's a preservative and everything. But in Jesus' time, apparently, they used it in a couple of other things. As uh, they would put salt, most of the salt they got was from the Red Sea area. It was very high, very dense salt. And they would put it in the fertilizer to, for two reasons. One, it would increase the potency of the fertilizer, would help grow things. And number two, it would help mask the smell. I have no idea if that's right, but believe me, I'm taking like vats of it with me to Dora next week while I'm driving out there. I'm throwing it out the window to see if those piles, see if it affected. I don't know. But, uh. but the point is this. If, if you're not going to work where you're designed, you're not even good enough to go to the manure pile. The point is that he wants us to be salty. He wants salty Christians. I want you to do something, but it's going to require you being used by him and used for him. It's not a ride on the bandwagon thing. It's not a I'm part of the, the cool name church. I'm, I do the cool things. No, it is a life change. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. Our purpose is is not to just be here. Our purpose is to make disciples. Make disciples and be disciples. And not to just bring them to a building. We want to introduce them to a life-changing Savior. Okay. We want to introduce them to a life-changing Savior. But we've got to count the cost. And I love this slide, and I love this concept, and we're going to keep revisiting this, but if what we're doing in here is not doing any good out there, then what we're doing in here is not doing any good. You hear me? That's not even hyperbole. That's just plain reality. If the songs that we're singing, if the communion time, if it's not changing our paradigms, if it's not reframing how we think, then it's not doing the good we were designed to do, and it's manure pile time. You see, when Jesus saw these crowds, he, he wanted a change. I want to go back. There's one other phrase that I want to go back to the very, very beginning. Verse 25. Uh, verse 25 says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said. One of the versions I was reading said, Large crowds were following him, and turning on them, he said. That uh, was a little bit different. I don't think he turned on them as in anger. He, he turned against the crowd. Now, this is a huge concept. Will we have the guts to turn against what the world says is priority? Will we have the courage to go against what is important? And friends, this is not hyperbole at all. It's a simple statement. What's most important? What is absolutely at the top of your list? And if it is anything not named Jesus, it's going to cost. If it's Jesus, it's going to cost a different amount. There is a cost whichever you choose. I think he's saying these shocking things because he doesn't want you to, to feel good. He wants you to understand what the cost is, and the cost is expensive. It's going to cost you your life. 
Another Bonhoeffer quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die to self. Buried with Christ, raised a new creation. That's what we say sometimes when we're having a baptism in there. To raise into a different life. Now Jesus has several shocking statements that are hyperbole, that are, are maybe strange to us. We're going to look at several of them. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Oh, Jesus didn't say that. Actually, he did. Uh, I don't want you to have anything to do with those people. Wait a minute. I thought you said go love everybody. We're going to look at some of these things because I want us to be people of the Word. And I want us to know what the Word says so when people come and, and use those phrases against us and say, well, see, the Bible, Jesus said, hate everybody. Hate your mom and dad. I want us to know how to defend that. Does that make sense? We want to be people of the Word. So we will know what they say. But I want you to be people that are a disciple. I want us to follow, not just go to church. I want us to be changed because we are here. That is our call. Those are the kind of statements I think Jesus wants to make in our hearts. Will you hear Him today? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.